0: The road to bringing a new medication to market is a long and expensive path. And Sir John Bell, who's the chair of a British biotech firm called Immunocore, knows this quite well.
1: It's usually, you know, it's 10, 12, 14 years, something like that. And for a company that's starting out, that's a long journey because you have to raise money all the way along that journey to get to to where you need to get to.
0: Immunocore got its start in Bell's lab more than 20 years ago. But as the company grew, they needed to find investors. So first, they looked inside the UK.
1: And so in about 2014, they raised a big A round from largely UK investors. So they raised a lot of money then and set off on a journey to try and develop these drugs.
0: Their main focus was to develop a new type of drug that uses T cells — cells that are part of our immune system — to treat a specific kind of melanoma. But after that Series A round, when it came time to raise more money, funding in the UK dried up. So instead, they turned to investors in the United States, where they had better luck. And in 2020, their clinical trial data came back showing positive results.
1: It was the first example of a T-cell receptor drug that had been successful in such a clinical trial that was very exciting. By
0: 2021, Immunocore was ready to go public. Now, for a company like Immunocore, which was started in the UK and operated inside the UK, you might think that the London Stock Exchange would be the obvious place to have its IPO. And for many years, it probably would have been. But instead, Immunicore went to the U.S., to New York City's Times Square, in fact, where in February 2021, they had their IPO on the Nasdaq.
1: It was such an obvious thing to go to Nasdaq. So we're pretty happy with that. We've been one of the best performing biotech stocks on the Nasdaq since we floated.
0: Now, Bell and Immunicore's path from the U.K. to the Nasdaq is hardly unique. Lately, we've seen high-profile British companies like semiconductor firm Arm Holdings that have chosen to do their IPOs outside the UK. And other UK companies that are on the London Stock Exchange have considered leaving. That's because something's changed. And the FT's markets editor, Katie Martin, says that something has been brewing for a while. So it's quite funny, the mysterious
2: case of the London Stock Exchange, right? So We've been writing stories here at the FT for, frankly, years, reflecting concern among bankers and investors and various other types of people that London is just not the hot place to list your shares. That all the kind of cool, funky new technology companies are choosing to list elsewhere and that over time, the London market has become this slightly stodgy old economy um, stock market.
0: And this has a wider impact out into the British economy. Katie says she recently even heard the exchange's CEO, Julia Hoggett, talking about this. I saw her speaking at a recent event and she was saying, I absolutely
2: want a single mother in Cumbria to care about the health of the London Stock Exchange, because ultimately, if the London Stock Exchange is doing well, then that's good for the prosperity of her family and for her children. It helps them to go to university. It helps them to buy a house. So it's about the whole ecosystem.
0: So what's happened to the London Stock Exchange? Well, that story begins with a yacht floating in the sea off the Canary Islands. Michaela from the Financial Times. On today's episode of Behind the Money, we're looking at the mysterious case of the London Stock Exchange. We'll track how the exchange went from the top spot in global financial markets to a place that can't seem to keep companies around. markets editor, Katie Martin, says that today, the London Stock Exchange has a certain reputation. Someone once
2: described the London Stock Exchange to me as an old people's home for companies. You know, it's just not a dynamic environment to be listed.
0: It wasn't always like this.
2: For a long time, it was the undisputed global home of finance. Um, You know, it, it was where... Pretty much everything got done, whether it was, you know, shares listing or bonds trading or whether it was currencies getting traded because the UK's got this nice little spot where we're quite convenient for a lot of different time zones. So it was just a fantastic place to get business done. And the City of London, particularly in the 1980s, just developed at an absolutely breakneck speed and just became an
0: incredibly important part of the British economy. But over time, U.S. stock markets took the lead as flashy U.S. tech companies like Apple and Amazon grew. U.K. stock
2: markets, by contrast, are pretty dull. You know, we've got GlaxoSmithKline, which is a massive pharmaceuticals company. We've got consumer names like Unilever. But you don't have to go very far down the list until you just hit a kind of gooey splodge of fairly boring banking and insurance names and lots and lots of resources companies and mining companies.
0: So to understand what led to the exchange's decline, you have to look back about 30 years.
1: A workaholic, he is constantly on the prowl for television stations, cable companies, satellite systems, newspapers, magazines, from Hong Kong to New York.
0: To just after the high-profile death of British publishing scion Robert Maxwell. Here's the FT's Asset Management Editor, Harriet Agnew.
3: Robert Maxwell was this larger-than-life media mogul who bought a whole load of publishing companies, including British Printing Corporation, Mirror Group Newspapers, and Maxwell Publishers.
0: In case that name sounds familiar to you, he's the father of Ghislaine Maxwell. And in 1991, he died.
3: Robert Maxwell was discovered floating in the sea off the Canary Islands in 91, having apparently fallen aboard from his yacht.
0: Stick with me here. I promise this all connects to the London stock market.
3: After his death, there was then this swift collapse of his publishing empire as banks called in their loans. The latest revelations surrounding
1: the Maxwell empire are probably the most damaging yet.
3: One of the things that emerged was that Maxwell had used assets belonging to the Mirror Group pension fund to prop up his companies.
0: So essentially... Maxwell was dipping into his employees' pension pots to buy shares that would then boost the stock prices of his own companies. And this was probably the most
3: high-profile corporate scandal around that time.
0: Here's a clip of an interview published on a U.K. television station after Maxwell's death. This person talking was a printer for one of Maxwell's newspapers. The banks made a conscious decision to lend their money to Maxwell, whereas the pensioners on no occasion were consulted And it seems that the money was transferred illegally. This discovery that Maxwell was taking his employees' pension money for his own use is the very beginnings of what's now become trouble for the London Stock Exchange. How? Well, first, we need to talk a bit more about these retirement plans. So let's dive in. Back then, in the 1990s, if you had a pension in the U.K., it tended to be what's called a defined benefit pension.
3: They pledged to make payouts to members in retirement based on their salaries while in work. So basically the employer or the corporate sponsor is on the hook for paying these pensions when their members retire.
0: But scandals like Maxwell's caused an uproar with the public. They demanded tighter regulation around these kinds of pensions. Now, all of that culminated less than a decade after Maxwell's voting incident, when in the year 2000, the UK adopted a new accounting standard for British companies. And it had the very creative and memorable name of FRS-17.
3: And what this did was it required companies to calculate the surplus or deficit on their defined benefit pension scheme each year. Um, And then any deficit had to be disclosed as a financial liability in their accounts, just as they would a bank loan or a bond issue. And so suddenly company boards could see both the magnitude and the volatility of their liabilities, um, which they were pretty horrified by.
0: For example?
3: What happened really was there was a situation where companies like British Airways or um, British Telecom were heavily weighed down by commitments to pay staff these generous final salary payments. And it was matched by a soaring life expectancy among their retired former employees, which was then compounding their financial burden. So all of this thrust U.K. companies into a state of uncertainty. They simply didn't know whether they had enough assets to pay the pensions of all their members um, as they fell due. And it also made it harder for the corporate sponsors to plan or invest for the future.
0: This rule, FRS 17, led to a huge shift in how the U.K. pension system operated. And that would eventually go on to affect the London Stock Exchange. It led employers who were in charge of those old-school pensions, aka the defined benefit plans, to make some major changes to how they invested their money.
3: There was this big shift in asset allocation. And so the trustees began shifting assets out of equities into government bonds that were supposedly much lower risk. And so as a result, suddenly you had this Natural capital base for UK companies, which was pension funds that were then starving them of capital. And there's a very telling statistic here, which is that in 2001, UK pension funds invested 56% of their assets in equities. And by 2021, this had dropped to just over 26%.
0: As you can imagine, this has left a big gaping hole in the amount of capital that's ending up in the London Stock Exchange.
3: So John Kay, who's one of the top economists in the UK, basically described this series of changes to tax regulation and accounting rules as one of the great avoidable catastrophes of British public policy.
0: So with pension funds pressed to avoid risk, the London Stock Exchange just kept losing its luster. But Harriet says it doesn't have to be this way, the way British pensions avoid risk. In her reporting, she looked at the way pension funds are run in other countries where they've pursued riskier investments and done really well.
3: I think the Canadian model in particular is pretty interesting. So we talked to the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, which has this amazing investment track record. I think they've gained about 10% a year since they were set up in 1990. And a big part of this is due to the way that it was set up to allow it to make bold choices about where it invests. For example, its investment board was set up as an independent entity. It was given an exemption from public sector pay caps, so it could hire people from the private sector. And it also manages to take advantage of its very long term time horizon by having a big allocation to private assets. The closest thing that the UK has to Canada's public pension plans are the local government pension schemes, which are around 90 regional funds. And these are quite heavily invested in equities already. And there's a big opportunity here to consolidate them in order to widen their investment scope and to try to enhance their returns
0: through greater scale. Inside the UK, there's a focus on another type of retirement system called defined contribution plans. Those are basically like a 401k for U.S. listeners. And these sorts of plans have become more common since those accounting standards, FRS-17, were implemented.
3: So really, the great hope is the defined contribution schemes, which are these sort of growing pools of capital to be invested. Now, people are looking at different ways to harness the DC pools. There's been talk about trying to pull them all together in order to get scale.
0: One proposal that Harriet's reported on is that these defined contribution plans... Could be required to invest between 10 and 20% of their funds in growth equities and infrastructure. Now, of course, these issues with UK pensions are hardly the only reason that the London stock exchange has struggled. But Katie says they're an important part of the equation. So it's it's not just the pension funds here that matter,
2: but that is in a way the easiest, for want of a better word, discrete chunk of the British financial ecosystem to fix. But the word that keeps coming up in our reporting on this system is we need a healthy ecosystem. So we need a healthy exchange. We need healthy clearing systems that do all the kind of back office stuff that makes sure that trades happen smoothly and properly. We need healthy asset managers that are run well and that are vibrant businesses by themselves. So we need banks to be in good health and able to bring companies to, to market. And all of these very delicate things all have to go right all at the same time. And, and we need really government policy to set this framework and to make sure that all parts of the system stay healthy. There isn't an easy fix here. So. You know, I know what the questions are, but I don't know the answer. But I do know that policymakers are looking quite urgently at this because they can see that something's got to change.
0: And Katie says companies moving to the U.S. to list isn't a problem exclusive to the U.K.,
2: so it's a really similar picture, actually, in Europe where investors are very cautious in comparison to a lot of them in the States. You know, in the States, you've got a very streamlined processing system for getting trades done with like, you know, boring stuff like clearing houses and all that kind of stuff that happens behind the scenes once trades get done. In Europe, you've got dozens of different national stock exchanges now. Does the Netherlands want to just shut down the Dutch one for the sake of efficiency and let all of its companies go and list in Frankfurt? No. (laughs) Does Frankfurt want to do that? Does Paris want to do that? Does Milan want to do that? We've just got dozens and dozens of these things. And countries don't want to let go of their clearing networks and their, you know, all again, all of that back office stuff. So you've just got this kind of mishmash of different listing venues and all these kind of different national regulatory frameworks that you have to deal with and you don't have a proper unified European market. So again, that sort of limits the ease with which trades get done and just the kind of general trading activity that happens in in individual names and individual stocks. So again, you've got a very similar picture in Europe to what you have in the UK.
0: What would you say is the future of the London Stock Exchange if it keeps losing companies? I mean, what will it look like in five to ten years if this keeps up? I'm going to
2: be an optimist and say that i I just don't think that policymakers in the UK or Europe for that matter, will just allow their stock markets to just spiral into terminal decline. I think they can see the urgency of the situation. The problem is that, I can't see a magic bullet to sorting this out. The nearest thing that anyone that we've spoken to in the course of our reporting can see that can really turn this around is not tweaking around the edges on listing and reporting rules. It's free up this money that's trapped in pension funds that some of those pension fund managers effectively might want to put to work elsewhere but currently can't. Yes, they have to do that safely. No, they can't compromise the safety of people's savings. But there has to be some sort of middle ground that we can strike here.
0: It's been more than two years since Immunocore had its IPO on the Nasdaq. The company's been doing well. Their drug for that type of melanoma I mentioned at the beginning of the episode hit the market last year. And Sir John Bell says he's happy with Immunocore's decision to list in the U.S., But I wanted to ask him, if he had to guess, what did he think would have happened with Immunacore if they had decided to list on the London Stock Exchange rather than the Nasdaq?
1: Yeah, so I, I don't think the company would be dead because, you know, the success of the company has really come from the success of its products. I suspect its valuation would be considerably lower, which means that the company has less financial leverage to raise money and do those sorts of things. It would have been less good for the investors, so they might be a bit grumpy about where we were at the moment, but we wouldn't, I mean, we wouldn't be dead on our feet. So the world would not have ended, and I don't think people would say that, but it also might not have been such a happy journey.
0: But still, he's sort of disappointed that he felt like his company couldn't even really consider listing on the London Stock Exchange.
1: I've worked ever since Gordon Brown and Tony Blair to try and build life sciences in the UK. And and we've not done badly. We've still got the best biotech sector in all of Europe. But I think one of the biggest regrets I've got is we've never been able to fix this scaling capital problem. And we have, over the time I've been in this job, the quality of the public markets has got worse, not better.
0: And he says this is a problem that stretches far beyond just UK biotech firms like
1: Immunocore. And I think this is quite an important thing is that the UK has got a terrific history of innovation and capitalism. But I think we have taken our eye off the ball because we end up now trying to do capitalism without any capital, not a good idea, unlikely to work. We have to have people who are prepared to take risks, sometimes very big risks. And, you know, I would say Immunocore was a very big risk for a lot of people over a long period of time.
0: As John's saying here, There needs to be a bigger appetite for risk-taking in order to attract companies like his to the UK public markets. Until then, the London Stock Exchange will probably have to keep waiting for its next big flashy IPO. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Tover Forhez is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week.